Welcome back to the Working Class Heroes podcast. My name is Johnny, and what you're about to hear is not episode three to the Taxi War series, but we will be releasing that soon. Today, we have a really interesting story for you all. And to tell that story, we have Julian. Hi, Julian. Hey, Yanni. Thanks for kicking this off. Yeah. Uh, can you let us know what is the story about? Actually, before we get into the story, I wanted to ask you a question because I think it gets to this story. But the question is, what is your most common complaint about cab drivers? Oh, what a question. Um, okay, I, I have good and bad cabbie stories. And I, I would say um, sexism, uh, feeling uncomfortable in the back of a cab, um, and fighting about, well, not often, but definitely fighting about how much I should pay for this fare. You're fighting with cab drivers about how much to pay for <laughs> a fare, but don't they have a meter in the car to determine that? Not usually. Uh, I normally call my cab from La Base, the base or garage. So they're predominantly black cabs. Um, I don't really hail yellow cabs or, you know, take cabs that have meters because they don't take me to the Bronx. Um, so I learned early on to rely on La Base or the train. <laughs> Got it. That makes sense. And that's really a common experience for many passengers here in New York City is that they are often refused service when they're trying to get to the outer boroughs. And that obviously has a disproportionate impact on people of color, in particular black passengers who are trying to get to wherever really in the outer right. boroughs. Um, it's terrible in part because our public transportation system is fantastic. <laughs> Note yep. the sarcasm. And so many people in a bind are like, hey, let me just jump in a yellow cab and it takes me where I need to go before the N train or the four train or whatever. Right. Yeah, it sucks. And I'm sorry that you've had to deal with that. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of people have their own experience with that. I'm sure, you know you listening to this right now you're probably thinking about your own stories the funny thing about what you just said is that it actually connects directly to the story that we want to tell and that's a story of an incident of taxi refusal and this story is really about the mayor of san juan carmen Yulín cruz being denied service by two yellow cab drivers one of them is mohammed mansuri and the other is jose guerrero who is actually my father wow okay and so when did this story take place? I feel like I would remember the mayor of San Juan getting kicked out of a cab. Well, it's been a bunch of years. This happened in 2015 oh. mm -hmm. before Uber basically tried to take over the yellow cab industry, before the medallion market crashed, and before nine drivers uh, died by suicide to protest their conditions and their worsening conditions. The interview with Jose is actually three years after the fact, after the incident. I sat down with Jose in September of 2018 to talk about this incident because he never really said anything about his whole experience and his side of the events when it all went down. You mentioned uh, your father and Muhammad. Are there any other uh, you know, key players or any, anything that you would like for listeners to keep an ear out for? while they take on the story with us? Besides Carmen Cruz and the two drivers that we mentioned, um, I think people should really try to listen to Melissa Mark Viverito's role in all this. And she was a city council speaker uh, at the time for the New York City Council. 
obviously Uber and de Blasio and what their roles are later on in 2015. Okay, so I mean, it's really unfortunate that it took your father three years to even tell his side of the story. Um, and so I'm curious, why this story? Why now? I think the reason why we want to talk about this story and share it with everyone listening is that this issue that continues to perpetuate, to exist, and that people continue to have to deal with day in and day out has really not been addressed in a constructive or creative way. And I think many of the times that we have seen this issue come up in public dialogue has been largely to further the credibility and the reputation of certain politicians mm. who take advantage of this situation. And so I think it'd be great if we could just delve deeper into this issue, maybe try to correct the record if we can, and illuminate this issue for our listeners so that they understand what is actually happening here. Great. Well, you know, I'm really excited to see how this story provides context, you know, for the battle unfolding today. So where do we start? Let's start with an interview that Carmen Cruz did a few weeks after this whole incident went down. Great to be back and seeing you, uh, Mayor. I, I think that last time we heard about you, you were in a cab and taken to the Bronx and it was, they didn't no, want to I pick was, you up. I was trying to get to the Bronx. And uh, once we were in, I said, well, what do you mean? I'm going to the Bronx now. Well, I don't know where that address is. I said, well, use your GPS. I don't have GPS. The point was that they didn't want to take us to the Bronx and they told us to get out of the cab. So. But I, I have to thank everybody um, in New York City because they were really good about it. This clip is from an interview Carmen did with City and State TV's interviewer, Herson Barrero, on May 27, 2015, 22 days after the incident. But to back up just a bit, if the name Carmen Cruz rings any bells, you might remember her from her sparring with President Trump after Hurricane Maria had devastated Puerto Rico in 2017. The U.S. government was bungling the disaster relief plans. Trump was filmed flipping paper towels into a crowd of Puerto Ricans waiting in line for FEMA supplies. Cruz called him out on it. Trump blasted her on Twitter. You can imagine how this all went down. But let's get back to 2015, to where we left off in the interview, with Carmen's opinion on why addressing taxi service refusal is important. And uh, it... it I think it helped to heighten the uh, need to know that transportation is something that is basic when people are trying to do better for themselves. So in that respect, it was uh, good that it happened and that I could use my voice as a microphone for those that do not have a microphone. You wouldn't be amazed at the amount of reporters that said, you know, that happened to me, that happened to me, the people sure. in Facebook and Twitter. So, but people in New York were very nice. They brought me uh, to little cabs and <laughs> a little taxi stand where it said, don't even think of parking here. Uh, and it was You felt nice. like a New Yorker. Yes, it was nice. And it, it doesn't matter if you're the mayor of a city. You're trying to get somewhere. And a good transportation system and access to transportation or the lack thereof is also a way to discriminate against people. I was uh, staying in this wonderful little hotel, uh, w quite inexpensive, outside of Manhattan, 
And we were doing it precisely because uh, Melissa Marquiverito, you know, is always looking after uh, her district. So we were staying over there. Everybody has a story when a taxi driver refused to take them somewhere. I'm sure there was that one time it even happened to you. You tend to get the most pushback from yellow cabs when you're in the outer boroughs, you know, Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx. Then there's those stories of black or brown passengers and from young passengers or maybe a group of young folks, as they would say, being turned down or ignored by cabbies driving in empty cars while they're in Manhattan. For people in wheelchairs, hailing a cab is a whole ordeal of its own. But listening to Cruz tell her story, it feels like there's some gaps to it. Like there's more to it than she's saying. It was May 5th of 19, uh, 2015, uh, Cinco de Mayo, and there were a lot of people in the street. It was raining, drizzling, dark uh, night, and somebody hailed me, and I just told, told them to come over to my cab, and uh, three people came in, two women sat in the back, and a man sat in the front. The cab that Carmen Cruz and her staff are stepping into is that of Jose Guerrero. Uh, they told me they were going to 49th Street and uh, like four something, 400 something East 49th Street. <clears throat> so I said, sure, let's go. And then in the middle of the ride, the man pulls out a, a like a little business card from a hotel. And uh, it said, uh, 500-something, 149th Street, uh, very close to that, in the Bronx. Now, I didn't know. I go to the Bronx. I've never refused any fares. I've had no complaints with the customers, from the customers at, to, to the TLC at all. Uh, I've always picked up uh, blacks. I've always picked up Spanish people. So uh, in the middle of the ride, the guy says it was on, in the Bronx. So I, so I asked him... Um, I asked, I asked everybody, says, I asked the lady, uh, the mayor, I says, do you know, I didn't know she was the mayor anyway, she was just a woman. I asked her if she knew how to get there. I didn't, I didn't have a GPS. And she said, uh, rather snottily, she says, if I knew uh, how to get there, I would be driving myself. All right, who cares, you know, how her attitude was or whatever. And then I said, but is it... Uh, is it uh, around Grand Concourse? And she said, no. Is it around uh, um, Park Avenue? No. Is it around Willis Avenue? She just said no to everything. And then she turned around to her friends and said, he doesn't want to take us to the Bronx. I said, why do you say that? I'm asking you, where is it around? What do you mean I don't want to take you? Why do you say that? Well, because this is America and I can say whatever I want. Then I said, look, I don't have a GPS. The Newark taxis have GPS. I'm going to bring you over to 7th Avenue. And then it was about three blocks away. It was a drizzling. No, it wasn't raining that hard, but it was drizzling. So I, I, I offered to bring him over to 7th Avenue where there is uh, cab, uh, empty cabs passing every, every, every minute, for the, every second at the time. 
And I wanted to go because at the time, everything in the taxi industry, everything is timing. In other words, uh, it, you, you get into Manhattan at uh, 5 30, 6 o'clock, and it stays busy until about 7 30, 8 o'clock when people go to the, you know, to, to the uh, wherever they want to go out to, uh, Madison Square Garden. Uh, if they want to go to the theater, if they want to go to uh, restaurants or whatever. So the, so it becomes rather slow from 8 o'clock until about 10. So it's a beautiful time to get a long ride because you can make money and, you know, you, you can make money rather than just driving around in an empty cab with, with um, 4,000 empty cabs around you. So I brought them over, and then they um, they they got out. Uh, I remember that uh, she said one one v eleven was the medallion of my cab. So she noticed that it was. She knows what she was. She knew what she was doing. She said there's nothing wrong with that. She didn't have GPS on her on her phone. No, no, she didn't. She didn't mention anything. She didn't say anything. And I, I remember some, distinctly saying, "Look, this car has no GPS." And nowadays, when someone jumps in your cab, like, what's the typical reaction? I'm sure many people are somewhat surprised that you don't have a phone. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God! How do you get her? How do you talk to your children? I don't talk to them. They'll have to wait until I get home. Until something happens. I know. I know. It's not the most uh, modern way of dealing with uh, with the situation. But then again, hey, I'm still around. You know, it's not the end of the world. Though Carmen Cruz frames it as just an issue of discrimination, Jose's story paints a bigger picture. This incident is about something else. Jose thinks it's about unrealistic expectations people have of cabbies. But what it is is that people think that we know absolutely every nook and cranny of this city, and and that is not true. There are so many places. Yes, sometimes they take you to... um, to uh, Brooklyn Heights often, but then again, you, they bring you there that often. But there are many places that they take me to a places that I have no idea that exist. And then I say, aha, I know how to get here now. And then the next time they bring me is two and a half years later when I've forgotten absolutely everything. So, you know, uh, people have to realize that. But but people have also the attitude that yellow cabs don't like to uh, go to the Bronx or to or to Brooklyn or whatever. That's not the that's not the point. We don't work those boroughs, especially in my situation, because if you bring me at three o'clock in the morning to Utica Avenue and Eastern Parkway, who else is there? Even the flies are sleeping at the at the moment. There, there's absolutely nobody around. And, and whoever is around might even be, a, you know, a wise guy or something like that. So, so what do we do? We shoot right back into the city, you know, because that's where there are some people. That's why there's still people all night long, even though they say that uh, New York doesn't sleep. New York sleeps. Trust me when I tell you. I remember the first day that I drove a taxi. Back in 1978. A man asked me to take him to the Plaza Hotel. And I said, can you tell me where it is? <laughs> Uh, really true that, that, that happened uh, first of all the yellow cabs we stay generally in Manhattan especially even more at night mm, and, and so if somebody gets into my cab now and they say uh, listen I'm going to some place in Brooklyn I said look 
I don't have GPS, can you direct me? And because it's at night, most of them are going back home. And they say, sure, take this, take this, take this. All right, and then I take that, and then sooner or later, before you know it, I'm there. And nowadays, people have this GPS stuff, right? What do you think about the GPS thing? And Tell me something about that. I think it's a great invention. I, I really think it is. Um, especially for somebody that has never used it, for somebody that has relied on, on memory. Um, yeah, it makes it much easier, but I don't have a phone. That's it. I just, you know, I don't have a telephone now. So therefore, I have no GPS. Statistics on how many passengers get refused service are hard to come by, but all parties involved would agree that it's a somewhat common occurrence. So much so that if you ride in a yellow or green cab long enough, you'll likely hear this public service announcement. Our doors are always open, so it is illegal for a taxi to refuse you service because of your race, ethnicity, cultural background, disability, or gender, or based on your destination if it is within New York City, Westchester, Nassau, or Newark Airport. Please note, borough taxis can't pick you up in most parts of Manhattan. If you are refused service, contact 311. Make sure you have the medallion or borough taxi number, pickup location, date, and time. We need to know. You can make a difference. From the taxi driver's side, the decision to refuse service isn't so cut and dry. In our previous episodes, we tried to break down the reasons why a taxi driver might refuse somebody's service. The city's racially segregated neighborhoods and geographic unevenness play a negative influence on drivers, and these working conditions create pressure on drivers to put profit ahead of ethics. Jose is a taxi driver who started driving in a time before GPS, Uber, and smartphones. Jose was shocked, though, to see how the story had been reported the following day. Well, I think I saw, uh, I saw it in the paper the following day. And I, I was surprised, you know, I said, well, you know, what can you do? Whatever I did, I did. Whatever happened, happened. And if I get a penalty and I have to pay a, a fine or whatever, I will do it. Because in the long run, I admit the fact that I was wrong. Jose accepted responsibility for the charges thrown at him. But when I asked if he had ever heard Carmen Cruz's version of the story, he said no. So I played him a clip. New at 11 tonight, the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, claiming she was kicked out of a New York City taxi cab because she wanted to be driven to the Bronx. And this is a story all too familiar to many New Yorkers who want to get to the outer boroughs. Carolina Lee in Greenwich Village with the story. Carolina. The cab driver said, oh, well, this is in the Bronx. I said, yeah. Well, I don't know how to get there. San Juan, Puerto Rico Mayor Carmen Yulene Cruz Soto says her trip to New York City has yet again been amazing. But trying to get a cab to take her to her hotel in the South Bronx has really been a headache. I said, well, you're telling me you don't want to take me to the Bronx. I says, no, I'm not telling you that because that would be legal. But I'm telling you that I don't know how to get there, so you're going to have to get off and take another cab. So clearly he didn't want to go to the Bronx. So she got out and hailed another yellow cab from Greenwich Village. But that wasn't much better. He took us there, uh, and all the way he was complaining about this is why people don't want to go to the Bronx. Mayor Cruz Soto says she got a taste of what it's like for some people trying to get a cab to the outer boroughs. She told her friend, council speaker, Melissa Mark Viverito, who called the TLC. I encouraged her to stay in a hotel in my district in the Bronx, and I was very happy that she uh, agreed to do that. So it was uh, uh, pretty disappointing to hear that in her experience of trying to get back to the hotel, uh, that she was denied a ride. This is New York City. I mean, this this is a place where dreams come true. 
where people come and, you know, I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. But in order to make it here, you have to get to the place you're going. And the mayor filed a formal complaint with the TLC using the ID number that she found on the receipt. The TLC confirms that it is investigating. Reporting live in Greenwich Village, I'm Carolina Lead, Channel 7 Eyewitness News. I'm curious to hear now what you think after watching how it was framed in the media, how the questions were asked to the mayor of, of San Juan, Carmen Cruz, how, you know, how she responded herself and how she framed that whole story. What, what did you think about it? She's lying. She's lying because I asked her if she knew how to get there or if she, and I asked her, I, I gave her three or four or five different choices so that I could, I could, if she says, look, it's on the Bruckner and whatever, then I know how to get there because if it was five something east, whatever, a street. But, but I, at, at no time did I say I don't want to go. At no time did I refuse to say uh, to, to, to not go. It's just that we don't know every place in the city. There are many, this, this is a gigantic city. When I asked Jose why he didn't clarify his version of events to the New York Times, he told me... I didn't want to make it even worse situation. I didn't want people to start taking pictures and putting it on the front page of the New York Times or whatever because I refused to take a person. I did not refuse. She didn't cooperate with me. Fine, I understand that. But then again, I don't think I should have been penalized because I did ask her three or four different things. Did you not trust the public that if you said, look, it wasn't exactly that and I've already paid my punishment, I've already paid the $200, but I want to say that it was more, it was a little bit more nuanced of a story than that. You don't think the public would have trusted you or you don't think, uh, uh, you think you would have been reprimanded or retaliated against even further? The truth does not exist anymore because she has said something and that was not the truth. And had I said something, people would have said, he's lying. So we, we, we learn, we, this is what we've learned. We learn to distrust everybody and not to believe anything that anybody says. So to me, it was a, like a waste of time to, to defend myself. All right, I did something wrong. In 40 years, once I've been complained, there's been one complaint against Jose Guerrero, yo. So the truth is dependent on who has the power to get it out there the most. Absolutely, of course. So who are they going to believe? Who are the people going to believe? A taxi driver or the mayor, mayor Marino, whatever the hell her name is? Um, whatever. What is her name? Melissa Margarito or Carmen Cruz? Carmen Cruz. Who are they going to believe? They're going to believe Carmen Cruz, even though she's lying. People may agree with these points, but it's about how these types of stories get reported to the public. Those with some social power get to beat up on those without any of it. Nevertheless, the narrative that drivers are racist or discriminatory is what sticks. You, you took it very well, by the way, being slighted by this cab driver. I don't know what the TLC did to that driver, but whatever. No, they, they went through the process. They were two of them. They yeah. went through the process, and uh, the one that kicked us out uh, received a much um, harsher penalty than uh, the one that took us and was complaining all the way Mm. Uh, that they were taking us there. But it was nice. Good. You survived it. I survived. And, and most importantly, thousands of people in New York City survive every day discrimination 
and they push on. And, and that's what's important, that it doesn't matter where injustice stands up, that there be 10,000, 11,000, however many, one, that stand up to injustice. What can I say to that? I, I, you know, that's the kind of stuff we should hear from politicians in New York or elected officials, so that's wonderful. I'm sure that the people that are watching this, they, they appreciate that. So I, the mayor wants you to come down to San Juan. I But who is Jose? And why should you believe his side of the story when it clearly contradicts Carmen's experience? Let's hear a little bit more about him. I'd also like to remind you that this is a bilingual project, so you can follow along Jose's story using our translated transcript on our website, workingclassheroespodcast.com. principio desde que supe que mi papá quería venirse a Nueva York. Yo estaba viviendo en un... Nosotros no nos vinimos por el sueño americano. Mi papá ya tenía el sueño americano en Colombia. Él era un CPA, un contador. Eh, tenía diferentes sitios donde él iba a trabajar y ganaba muy buen dinero. Tenía carro en 1954. Teníamos un Ford. 1954, que es prueba de que había dinero. Un día él se levantó y dijo, soñé que me quería ir a Nueva York y me voy a ir a Nueva York. Tenía un amigo, muy amigo, que era vicepresidente de la flota mercante gran colombiana. Eran buques y viajaban a Nueva York o a Los Ángeles, obviamente por mar. Y entonces él se consiguió un puesto como contador de uno de esos buques, del ciudad de Neiva. Jose was not happy about his father's decision to migrate to the United States. Yo odiaba la idea de venir acá porque yo estaba con un muy buen grupo de amigos, muy deportistas, en un barrio muy bueno de Bogotá en esa época, y no quería que me arrancaran de mis raíces. He disliked the idea so much that he developed a great disdain for English. Jose's mother attended a very prestigious school and decided to teach him English in preparation for the trip. Uh, yo me acuerdo que le cogí fobia, fobia al inglés. Uh, y mi mamá me martillaba clases de inglés. Y yo lo odiaba a morir. Llegamos nosotros aquí a Nueva York en 1961, el 4 de marzo. Y uh, en un sitio muy bueno, papá estaba bien económicamente, en, en Riverside Drive y la, la calle 94. Elegante, de lo mejorcito que había en, en, en Nueva York. Después, él compró una casa allá en Corona, la vendió porque tenía un amigo en el Bronx, y nos fuimos al Bronx a vivir al Bronx. Jose's family settled on Clinton Avenue in the Bronx, about seven stops away on the four train from the Opera House Hotel. I mentioned the Opera House Hotel because that's the hotel where Carmen and her friends stayed during their visit in New York back in 2015. How old were you at this time in the Bronx? Debió ser como 14 años, 14, 15, máximo, ni siquiera 15. Yo diría solamente 14 años. Y sin amigos y todo. Sin absolutamente no conocía a nadie. Similar to what many experienced when moving to a different country, 
Jose felt isolated from his community. The neighborhood he moved to was predominantly Jewish, and it took Jose's athleticism to prove himself and be accepted on the block. Entonces, ¿qué pasó? Un día estaban jugando stakeball y yo estaba sentado ahí sobre el carro, como nosotros en esa época nos sentábamos sobre los carros a, a hablar, a discutir, eso. yo estaba mirándolos porque no me escogían. En el, they never chose me. Did you ever ask to be included? Yo como que ni hablaba inglés, mejor dicho, yo como que no me sentía como apenado o algo así. Uh, me imagino que debería estar un poco complejado de no tener, poder comunicarme con ellos bien. De todas formas, uh, me escogieron, they chose a game, escogieron un partido y empezaron a jugar y como que en el segundo inning una mamá saca la cabeza de su cuarto piso de su, de su apartamento y le dice a Steven, súbete que, tú, que nos tenemos que ir a algún sitio. Entonces se, se escuadró el, el equipo. Entonces me miran, se dieron cuenta que yo estaba y me dijeron, ¿usted quiere jugar? Le dije, bueno, sí. Jugué mejor que Babe Ruth. Entonces, ya al día siguiente, ya decían, uh, ¿cómo es que se llama usted? Bueno, yo quiero que él juegue con en mi equipo. Y uh, por eso es que a mí me gustan tanto los deportes, porque fue a través del deporte que, 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 que me aceptaron los amigos. Getting the chance to play stickball helped him to break through that isolation, but it didn't necessarily mean that he was embraced by the entire community. El grupo eran como de unos... 20 muchachos y eran y había solamente tres muchachas pero una de ellas se llamaba Debbie y todos estábamos enamorados de Debbie y, Nevis, y Debbie se llevó muy bien conmigo y nos llevamos bien y todo pero la mamá digamos sacaba la cabeza por la ventana cada 10 minutos para asesorarse de que Debbie no estaba hablando conmigo y, y por qué no era hablando conmigo no era por mi forma de ser ni nada sino por lo que yo no era judío ya eh, hubo ese racismo en esa época, de la, no de los muchachos. Los muchachos me aceptaron perfectamente bien, pero de los papás de los muchachos. Jose was aware of the cultural differences, and while he was a part of the group, he knew he would not be allowed to court Debbie. But as Jose was coming to understand how class and racial dynamics work in the U.S., at the same time, Jose was experiencing something he didn't before as a white Colombian man. Pasó eso. A mí me pasó eso de que me rechazaron total y completamente, eh, parte por no hablar inglés y parte por porque los hispanos, nosotros al principio los hispanos tuvimos un mal nombre o una forma negativa de que nos vieran, porque los primeros hispanos que llegaron a Nueva York fueron puertorriqueños. Los puertorriqueños se unieron con los negros a Spanish Harlem y esto lo otro y la música y la parranda y la falta de trabajo y como eran como eran ciudadanos americanos el the unemployment and this and that. Throughout U.S. history, Latinx folks, Black Americans, and Indigenous people have been barred from opportunities of social mobility, from good-paying jobs, from housing, from a decent education. Many of them have been thrown into poverty instead. 
que los puertorriqueños aprovechaban de, de, de los beneficios que daba este país y entonces a uno lo agrupaban como hispano o puertorriqueño en un mismo grupo. Entonces no nos, no nos querían muchísimo, que digamos. José observed how U.S. society discriminated against black and brown people. He saw how Latinx folks were lumped together into one category because of their skin color, culture, and language, despite their differences. And for the first time, Jose saw himself included in that oppressed group. Despite these difficulties, Jose did not want to leave New York City when his father decided to return to Colombia. Y a los 19 años, papá se fue, y desde los 19 años yo estoy viviendo solo. Mejor dicho, saliendo adelante solo. After his parents left to Colombia, Jose would have several jobs here and there before becoming a cabbie in 1979. But as you can see, Jose's experience in dealing with first-hand racism and growing up in the Bronx seems to cut against the type of person that Carmen Cruz is trying to depict in her story. So Yanni, after hearing all that, I'm curious to hear what you think about it. Wow. Carmen Cruz really used her power, her office, her title to exploit the situation and vilify two drivers. Um, I don't know. It's, it's horrible. I think it's very opportunist. And it's really sad to see that Politicians take real problems and issues faced by New Yorkers, and instead of providing actual solutions or to get to the root of the problem, they use these situations to build their careers. Right. Definitely. And again, it's to the real detriment of these drivers. I mean, Mohammed Mansouri was fined $1,400, and his license was revoked, and Jose was fined $200 and none of them questioned any of this despite their lived experience and seeing something different to what was being told in the mainstream media about this whole incident. How is that a solution to the problem? It's not. I mean, what Carmen Cruz got out of it was a nice little soundbite. Do you remember it? It was something like, you know, if you want to make the American dream, you got to yeah. get to it. Get to it, right. Really cynical stuff. And it wasn't just... Carmen Cruz, who took advantage of this, Bronx Borough President did as well. And we're talking about Ruben Diaz Jr. here. I'm not surprised. He wrote this letter to the Taxi and Limousine Commissioner, to the chairperson, Mira Joshi, who is not the chairperson of the TLC anymore. And it was a, it was a public letter. And in the letter it said, if yellow taxi drivers are refusing service to the Bronx or only providing that service begrudgingly, how many potential tourists is my borough losing because of this? The Bronx has seen significant transformation in recent years, and we cannot effectively tell that story if yellow taxi drivers are refusing to bring passengers here. Oh, I'm not surprised he said that at all. You know, um, I don't need any more reasons to dislike and really hate Ruben Diaz Jr. Um, because he has been an agent of displacement and gentrification in the Bronx. Um, you know, he, he's in cahoots with uh, real estate developers um, that are working to displace us. And the fact that he focuses on tourism just tells you where his priorities are. 
he does not care about us. Um, right. And I, I mean, that's just two examples. You also said to keep an ear out for Melissa Margriverito's role. Do you remember that public service announcement that we played earlier on in this episode? The one that states the passengers' rights, if they are refused service, and all that, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you know who that was? No. That was Melissa Mark Viverito. Oh, okay. Right? So she definitely, like, grabbed onto that role of being the spokesperson about taxi refusals and later on played a more detrimental role for cab drivers. In 2015, later on in that year, and we're talking about a few months later, like in July, Mayor de Blasio goes toe-to-toe -to -toe with Uber. The reason for it was because Uber's number of cabs exploded. They were just growing too quickly, taking up too much space, and causing a lot of congestion and a lot of questions that were brought on because this whole Uber thing was not regulated in any way. And so Mayor de Blasio was like, well, let's put a cap on Uber so that we can study the effects of all these cars and see what we can do to try to regulate this service and bring them into the whole taxi industry. Well, Uber decided that that was not what they wanted to do. Their whole mm -hmm. model depended on adding more and more cars because ultimately they wanted to displace the yellow cabs altogether. So Uber decides to run a whole PR campaign and they do it very effectively from de Blasio's left. They play a bunch of commercials and most of them are using talking points that Carmen Yulene Cruz and Melissa Mark Viverito are using in their own statements and press conferences to go after these two cab drivers. Actually, as a matter of fact, we have one and we'd like to play it for you right now. You need to get to the night shift in the South Bronx. Get your baby to the doctor in Jamaica, Queens, and get to the airport from Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And while taxis often refuse people in minority neighborhoods, Uber's there, taking more people to and from communities outside Manhattan than anyone. But Mayor de Blasio is pushing the agenda of his big taxi donors to limit Uber cars and drivers. And vital service for thousands of New Yorkers may vanish. Tell Mayor de Blasio, don't strand New York. Uber uses this commercial and is able to stop the cap. But the interesting thing is that de Blasio was not that far away from beating Uber and imposing the cap. He had collected all the votes he needed in the city council, and with the help of Melissa Mark Viverito, the city council speaker, they were just about to vote on passing the cap, but then something happened. Melissa Mark Viverito decides that instead of having the vote, she talks to de Blasio and compels him to enter into negotiations with Uber. Mm. And that's when the cap and the effort to get a cap pass on Uber just dies. From that point on, Uber's allowed to grow. All the problems that we see play out from 2015 to now. Then the medallion market crashes early on in that time. And we have all the troubles that we've seen and that we've reported on in episodes one and two. But Again, this is the role that Melissa Mark Viverito played in that fight. Uber, in an article that we can share on our website, points to the incident between Melissa Mark Viverito, Carmen Yulene Cruz, and these drivers as the reason why Uber is a superior service. You know, I didn't know just how deep this connection was. I really appreciate you taking the time 
to break that up for us, to see the connection between this incident and what is unfolding today. And so I'm really curious, Julian, what was it like for you to provide your father this opportunity to tell his side of the story? I mean, you lived through this, right? This, you were directly impacted by this. This was an incident that happened to your father on the job and could have you know, easily gotten his TLC license revoked. I mean, it was frustrating to see, and I definitely saw my father feel very repressed because a lot of his experience was not what was being reflected in the stories and the reporting of this whole incident. Um, I'm sure Mohammed Mansouri probably felt the same way. Neither one of them released any statements, nor did they reach out to any organizations, as far as I know, to try to get them to help uh, deal with the situation in the public eye. I. You know, I think it really, first of all, I think it underscored this reality that my father did not have a cell phone at the time because we couldn't really afford it. Mm. We were living like, what's worse than paycheck to paycheck? (laughs) Yeah. Who knows? But we were in that kind of a situation and he didn't have a smartphone or any phone at the time. And this is all compounded by that, right? But honestly, I think what it, the way it affected me is that it really made it clear to me how official politics and politicians really push working people away from engaging with politics altogether. In the face of that, working people just step away. And if anything, maybe this is why we see this growing sentiment of anti-elites or anti-elitism that we see now. The same sort of sentiment that gave a pass to Trump to the presidency and is kind of electrifying Bernie Sanders' campaign for president right now. And I think that there is an alternative set of politics that working people are in dire need of, and one that really just represents them honestly and does not use and Mm -hmm. abuse them. So I think that, yeah, this this really cemented that for me. What are your opinions on what the city could do to actually address service refusal in the cab industry? Well, I think the starting point are some of the things that we've listed before, right? So I think the city has to reckon with a few things. First and foremost, the incredible racial segregation that we see in this city. The transportation inequality and lack of access that we see for many working people in the outer boroughs, which is only getting worse as the MTA continues to restructure. And by restructure, they don't mean to expand, but to cut. Mm-hmm. several services, like bus services to Queens. I think that the city also has to really go back to 1999, to that incident that we spoke about in episode two between Danny Glover, his tax refusal experience, and what he tried to do about it in collaboration with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. Giving the cab drivers an opportunity to talk about these issues, to talk to the public, to come up with solutions that they think will be effective, to understand why they have to make these difficult choices, which I'm sure many of them are not happy to do, but do so because of the economic pressure that they feel in this ever increasingly expensive city to just reside in. Really have to agree with you there. Um, So to conclude, the reason why we wanted to share this incident with y'all is because it seems that there's a relation between Carmen Yulin Cruz, Mohammed, Jose, and the defeat of the mayor's cap in 2015. and then we see the rise of Uber. 
and its takeover um, our streets. And that's when we start to see working cabbies actually organize and fight back and take a stand against their working conditions, the fight with Uber and Lyft, and as well as speak up for their fellow workers and those that have died by suicide because of their working conditions and the struggle to maintain their profession and feed their families. And so we're seeing today that these drivers are standing up, are saying enough, want to be heard, are telling the city exactly what they need to have a healthier work industry. And what I find beautiful about it is that they're really standing there having each other's backs. You know, they're still there and they're still very vocal. We have to support them because as of today, no one at the TLC has been held accountable for the bust in the medallion. And that has cost lives. And I'm hoping that this movement can get to the point where they can have justice. We will be back with episode three soon. In the meantime, check out our website at workingclassheroespodcast.com to review the transcript for this bonus story, photos from previous episodes, as well as links for further reading into the politics and reporting of this story. We hope to be back with you soon. This is Johnny Guzman, as always, in solidarity.